that you are here tonight. We go through the whole Bible on Wednesday nights, and we finished the book, the Old Testament about two months ago, and now we're in the New Testament, starting in the first of the Gospels, the book of Matthew. And if you remember, when we first started the book of Matthew, the intro to the book of Matthew, the audience or the people that Matthew is really trying to get the attention of are the Jews. And because of that, he, he is the one that quotes the Old Testament the most. There's the most in terms of Old Testament passages that are quoted in the book of Matthew, more, more than any of the other Gospels. In fact, you have more miracles quoted in the book of Matthew. In fact, just in chapters 8 and 9, which we're in the middle of right now, we have nine miracles, more than any two chapters in the entire Bible. We see such a concentration of miracles. And the reason why is to prove who Jesus is. He's proving the prophetic power of who he is by fulfilling prophecy in the midst of the people that he's talking to. In Matthew chapter 9, we start off where we left off last week, there in verse 1. So he got into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And then behold, uh, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, uh, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man uh, blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil is in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk? But that they, you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power uh, to men. And Father, as we approach this amazing section in the Bible, the, these um, prophetic uh, miracles that, that are proving who uh, Jesus is, these miracles that had never been done even in Israel, uh, the, the, these miracles that were the proof that Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, uh, God, walking here on uh, this earth in human flesh is who he says he was. And so, Lord, tonight we thank you that you still do miracles. We thank you that you're still walking in our midst, that you live even in our hearts, Lord. We ask that you would just work amongst us tonight. Lord, I ask that you would take away those those judgmental eyes, those planks that could be in our eyes even tonight. Lord, where we are so critical, maybe of other people or Christians or even of things that we read in your scriptures, Lord, please forgive us. Lord, help us to never judge you by what we see in this world, but instead see you working in this world in miraculous ways even now. Lord, help us to never limit your power and who you are. And so, Lord, tonight open up our hearts, prepare our hearts, help us to see who you are through your word tonight. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Matthew is one of those books that as you go through it, it he's very logical. 
Remember, we, we started out right at the very beginning with this huge, long genealogy tracing all the way back from Abraham all the way to Joseph himself and, and seeing the miracles of God even in the genealogy of Jesus. That, that Normally, we'd skip over those things, right? Those are too big of words. I can't pronounce those words, those names. I don't know idea who those people are. But just the amazing way that God, even in the genealogy of Jesus, is prophetically bringing about who his son is. At any point, that line could have been exterminated, and yet God, in his perfect uh, will, accomplishes amazing uh, things. And then, as we started in the book of Matthew, especially 5 through 7 there, we see the Beatitudes. And remember, he's teaching uh, the disciples. He starts with those 12 men up there on the northern banks of the, the Sea of Galilee there. And then this multitude grows and grows. And by the end of chapter 7, uh, we read that there's this multitude that is now listening uh, to Jesus. And then he proves those teachings through miracles. And starting in chapter 8, chapter 9, we get miracle after miracle. In fact, there's nine miracles just in uh, these two uh, chapters. Miracles that had never been done even in Israel, even in uh, the world up until that time. Proving who Jesus is. He's fulfilling prophecy right in their midst. In fact, the miracle that we read here at the beginning of chapter 9, you may know it better from one of the other Gospels, maybe from the book of Mark or the book of Luke. Remember, this is the guy that the house was so crowded that his friends couldn't even bring him in. And what did they have to do in order to bring him to Jesus? They had to cut a hole in the roof. In fact, if you look here in the book of Mark, we read exactly where he's at in Capernaum is the place where, very similar in the same region as Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So he's amongst his own people, probably people that he even grew up with himself. In Mark chapter 2, just listen to uh, Mark's telling of this story here. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in uh, the house. Okay, So this was probably a house where he had preached several times. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive him, not even near the door. Now, can you imagine a room this size just literally packed with people? Where, where it's standing room only, where, where there is no room even to come in uh, through the doors. And just like the roofs on this building, which are flat, by the way, and even have paper ceilings, you can imagine the, the, these friends of this paralytic trying to open up uh, the roof. Now, of course, roofs in that time, they weren't the shingle roofs or the A-frame roofs like what we have nowadays. There would have been a flat surface with either mud or with some sort of material vegetation on top or even palm branches on top in order to provide insulation. And then what they would have had dug, done is literally dig through the roof. Not just removing tiles, but literally digging through this roof. Look at what it says there. And then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Can you imagine that? 
this paralytic, paralyzed man, that means he couldn't use his arms, he couldn't use his legs. How does he have to even get to Jesus? Who is he dependent upon? His four friends, right? It, it, it wasn't this guy that's somehow crawling toward Jesus or somehow exercising his own faith to even get there. It's his friends bringing him to Jesus. Aren't you glad for godly friends in your life that literally have to carry you to church sometimes? Because maybe you can't yourself. Or maybe you don't even want to. Or that grandma or that mom or that dad or that friend or that brother or that sister that brought you to church for the first time. Are you grateful to them? How, how many times have you thanked God for the people in your life that brought you to church or brought you into the presence of God? These four men uh, uh, that are bringing their paralytic friend, their paralyzed friend, they, they can't even get through the front doors. They can't, they can't th get in through any of the doors. And what do they have to do? Verse 4 there in Mark chapter 2, it says, and, and when they had not, or when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Okay, imagine this is your house, by the way. Okay, imagine this is your house, okay? It, not only are the scribes complaining about this, but just imagine, and, and the privilege of understanding that, first of all, that Jesus is in your house, that your house is full of people listening to Jesus, but then all of a sudden the roof opens up. And who's brought down before Jesus? That, that's an engineering thing in itself, by the way knowing where Jesus was and putting that bed or that stretcher or whatever it was right in front of Jesus. That was a miracle in itself, knowing exactly where to dig, exactly where to go through, okay? But then as he is put before Jesus, what is the first thing that Jesus says to this man? It's not rise up and walk. It's not some chant that he prays over this paralyzed guy in order to get him to stand up. You see, what Jesus knew and what the Bible brings out is there's something deeper in this paralysis. There was something going on in his spirit. What does Jesus say first? When Jesus saw their faith, the friend's faith, by the way, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Then we go back to the book of Matthew here. And you can actually, this story is also in the book of Luke, the book of Mark, and the book of Matthew as well. This is one of those stories that's repeated multiple times. And if you look in the book of Luke and also in the book of Mark, there, there's a little bit of a more detailed description of this miracle. But since we're in the book of, of Matthew, what Matthew brings out is something very important because what the scribes are saying to Jesus really reflects the religious hearts, re reflects the religious elite of the day. What do these scribes say when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? They don't see the paralyzed man. They, they have no compassion upon him, by the way. 
What, what do they see? Someone trying to take their power. Someone trying to take their place. What do they say? And at once some of the scribes said, within themselves this man blasphemes. They don't even say it out loud. It's in their heart. It's that judgmental attitude that we can have so many times. Maybe even sitting, you know, in church sometimes. That guy has no idea what he's talking about, you know. None of you would ever say that. I know you, none of you would ever say that. But what do they say about Jesus? This man blasphemy. And, and, and if this was any normal human being, that would be 100% true. In fact, according to the book of Leviticus, blasphemy, pretending to be God, acting like God, saying that you are a God by forgiving sins is a literally a punishable by death. A stoning. But what does Jesus do? Verse 4. First of all, he, he knows their thoughts. Okay, who's the only person that can know the thoughts of man? Uh, God. But then also he can forgive sin. Only one that can do that is God as well. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. Now, just think about this. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say anything out loud. But which is easier to say? Because one of them has an external proof and the other has an internal proof. If you were to say, your sins are forgiven, that, that's an internal change, right? And, and there's no way of looking at someone's heart and saying, oh, my sins are forgiven. But there is a way of proving if someone says, rise up and walk. Because what has to happen if there's power behind the words? What does that person have to do? They have to rise up and walk, right? Now, Jesus is saying that it's not the one that says, rise up and walk, that has the more power, though. Which is the one that has the more power behind it? It's the forgiveness of sin. Because who's the only one that can forgive sin? In fact, the one that was sitting there right in their midst was going to pay for their sins, by the way. Came to this earth to pay. There's the only one who could, by the way. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to show you that not only can I forgive sins, but I can also make someone walk who is paralyzed. Arise, take your bed, go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Isn't that amazing? Now, why was this person paralyzed? We get a glimpse of this at the very beginning. Not only did his friends bring him these four men, opening up the roof of the house and, and dropping their friend down, Jesus 
seeing their faith, by the way, acknowledging their faith, acknowledging their love for uh, their friend. But the very first thing he says, it's not a rise up and walk or some sort of healing of the limbs or healing of the legs or some sort of outward healing. What's the very first thing he wants to make sure is healed in this man? Why was he paralyzed? Why was he paralyzed? Was there sin was there sin in his life? Was there something that he had done in his life that and this is by the way this is the only time that we see Jesus acknowledging the sin before the miracle, the sin before the healing, okay? In every single other case, whether it was the person that was born blind, and Jesus very made very sure that people understood that this wasn't because of his parents' sin or because of his sin. He wasn't born blind because of sin, okay? The reason that man was born blind was to glorify God, okay? To prove the power and the glory of God. But in this case, this being the only case that we see in the scriptures in terms of a sin, causing something in the outward person, a, a paralysis, if you will, uh, an internal, whether it was fear or whether it was sin that, that was happening in his life, that God had stopped him on purpose and paralyzed him to keep him away from that sin. And then his friends bringing him there right to Jesus, what is the first thing that Jesus addresses? And he proves that he has the power to forgive sin, by the way, by causing this miracle to take place. Now, what was happening in that room? And you can see it here with these scribes, these Pharisees, these hard-hearted, stiff-necked Jews. That, by the way, Matthew is purposely writing to. Matthew being the one that, that wrote specifically to the Jewish nation proving who Jesus was, the, these hard-hearted, stiff-necked that really came up to the very definition of what a Jew was, the, the judgment that God said multiple times throughout the Old Testament, you are a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. What was in their heart? What was the judgment that they were doing with Jesus? I love what it says there at the end of the book of Mark's story there. If you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Wow. We, we've never seen anything like, how can this be? And remember when we were in chapter 8, we saw la or this uh, uh, leprosy that was healed. And again, something that had never been done in the history of the nation of Israel, leprosy being healed. All, all those Levitical laws 
that had to be fulfilled where a, a leprous person that was healed of leprosy had to go to the priests and do all these ceremonies that had never been uh, exercised or even accomplished ever in the history of Israel. And now Jesus is healing leprous people. And now Jesus is healing paralytic people that are completely without any sort of use of their limbs. Can't even get around. And then who does Jesus come to next? And by the way, we read these, these miracles. We see them one right after another here in these amazing chapters as we're walking through. And then all of a sudden he meets the author of this book. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It's easy to remember, by the way. Matthew 9, 9. Look at what it says there. And, and by the way, there's only one verse of this happening in the book of Matthew. We see it also in the book of Mark. We see it also in the book of Luke as well. But now we meet the guy who's actually writing this book. Yes, 100% inspired by God. Yes, according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing these words. He's literally describing how Jesus found him right after the paralytic, by the way. Right after he has left the house of the guy who had been paralyzed, and he meets a guy by the name of Matthew. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. What, what is a, a tax collector? Y you all know. We have to do it every single year, right? It, it, it's that office in the government that everybody hates, right? It, it, it's the office in the government that, that, that other people, other branches of government are even trying to cut their funding. Why? Do, do they want a tax collector on their doorstep? Would you ever want a tax collector on your doorstep? Would you ever want to receive a letter from a tax collector? No. Can, can you imagine Matthew's reputation? But it's even worse than that, by the way. Because Matthew didn't just work for a tax collector. Matthew worked for the tax collectors of the enemy. Matthew worked for the Roman government. It was them that hired Jews that were supposed to collect the taxes from their fellow countrymen and then give it to the Romans. According to the Jewish faithful, Matthew would have been a very horrible person. He would have been a hypocrite. He would have been an outcast. He would have been hated by his fellow countrymen. Not just for taking their money, not just for charging them taxes, but because they worked for the enemy. They worked for the Roman government. This is why they were so hated for who they were. And to imagine that not only, we've already seen some of these apostles already, Peter and James and John and, and James, and these were fishermen, of course. You can remember their hands. They had calloused hands. They were used to working in boats and fishing and, and dealing with nets. These would have been blue-collar workers. And now you meet Matthew, and he's a white-collar guy. What, what does he do? Did, did he ever have to go on a boat and fish? No. What, what did he do? 
He was an accountant, right? He was very good with numbers. He could make it so that he could not only pay the Roman government, but also skim some off the top for himself. For the tax collectors of the day, they didn't get paid by the Romans. They got paid by how much they could take from their fellow countrymen and keep for themselves. Remember Zacchaeus? That's what he did, right? In fact, he was so convicted in his own heart that he had overcharged his fellow countrymen that he was willing to give back to the people. So we meet Matthew here. Matthew, by the way, and I love in the book of Matthew, we see his Greek name. In the book of Mark and also in the book of Luke, we actually see his, his Jewish name as well. Uh, Matthew means gift from God. Uh, Matthew being a, a gift from God, writing the very first of the gospel. Right? Writing the gospel that was to his fellow countrymen, by the way. Remember, Mark was to the, the Gentiles and, and Luke had this analytical mind for for those that, that wanted to get into the nitty-gritty, if you will, and then, then John uh, writing to the Greeks as well, the other three Gospels writing predominantly to non-Jewish people. But Matthew, his heart was for the Jews. His heart was for his nation, bringing about, showing what it means to see prophecy being fulfilled, and then Jesus choosing him amongst all those other tax collectors, by the way. All, all those other people that were doing the tax collecting. God, Jesus Christ, comes right up to him and says, follow me. And what does he do, by the way? The Bible says it very clearly. He arose and followed him. Can you imagine leaving all those books? Can you imagine leaving all those piles of money and following Jesus and, and living with those other 12 apostles and Jesus Christ, dependent upon uh, Jesus? I, is that a very difficult decision? And if you understand what G Jesus does with Matthew, you understand the change of the heart of a man who was driven for money and now is driven for the Lord. Matthew had another name, though. Matthew had a name that was also Jewish, as many people that worked for the Roman government. Normally, when you worked for the Roman government, you had a, a Greek name or a name that was not so Jewish, and then you had your Jewish name. In fact, in the book of Mark, chapter 2, we read his Jewish name, it says there in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2, and then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came with him and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Not only did Matthew have his Greek name, but he also had a Jewish name. And this Jewish name was very profound. Because it was the name Levi. You guys remember Levi? He was the head of the Jewish tribe, if you will. The one that Moses and Aaron and all the priests were to come from. In fact, every single descendant of Levi was dedicated to the service of the temple itself. 
the one tribe that didn't inherit any property, the one tribe that was not didn't have a single place within the land. They were scattered throughout all the other tribes. This was the tribe that was known for worship. This was the tribe that was known for serving God. You guys know what Levi means? It means united or joined. Matthew not only being a, a gift from God, but his Jewish name, living that out, literally means united or joined. Joining Jesus Christ. The one for whom every single one of those priests, even though they didn't know it themselves, were pointing to the Messiah every single time they did a sacrifice. Every single time they would light those candles. Every single time that they would go in and do the showbread. Every time that they would clean the, the, the wicks or, or fill up the oil. Every single one of those instruments and, and utensils within the temple itself pointed to the one that was standing before Matthew right there and then. Saying, come, follow me. The one whom prophecy was being fulfilled in their very midst. By the way, we're going to find out more about Matthew in the next chapter. All 12 of these apostles are going to be listed there. Continuing on there in, in chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 10, it says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, this happens immediately after Matthew is chosen, by the way. Why is that important? You see the context, right? He chooses this tax collector. He goes to, whether it's his house or a friend's house, we don't know exactly, but there's a whole group of these tax collectors Matthew is being a missionary right away. He's inviting his friends. He's inviting his colleagues. He's inviting those that he had worked with, by the way. And who, again, hates this? It's those Pharisees. It's those scribes. It's those religious elite. Why do they hate this, by the way? Again, just like when they hated Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven to that paralytic, why do they hate this? Because he's not only showing who he is amongst the people, but people are being drawn to him. People love him. People want to be around him. Not, not only, normally what we do is we think of Jesus as this boring guy, this guy who, you know, just talked or did, preached all the time or whatever it is, living out in the fields or sleeping on a rock or whatever it is. We get all these pictures that unfortunately aren't true. But Jesus loved people. Do you see that in the Gospels? Did Jesus love people? And did people love him? The multitudes were attracted to him. What, what was Jesus fun, if you will? But did he have a purpose in the fun? Isn't that amazing? In fact, so much so that these Pharisees are accusing Jesus, if you read into this, that they're accusing him of partying. That they're, they're accusing him of having too much fun. Okay? If you can do that, I don't know. 
But do you see what they're doing here? Look, at, you can see it right here, verse 12. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Why did Jesus hang out with the tax collectors? Why did he hang out with the sinners? Because he was calling them. And, and of course, you, you guys know this. Why do you go to a hospital? The, the illustration is very clear. Why do you go to the doctor? It, it's because you need some help. You need to be healed. Talk to Ramon. I, I just get to know ramon okay he's an amazing guy and it's just one of those things that that happens when your eye gets hurt or talk to dino with his fingers what do you have to do when you get hurt where do you go because you need healing you need someone to take care of you jesus understood this by the way that that phrase that he says there i desire mercy and not sacrifice goes all the way back to Samuel and Saul. It goes all the way back to this period in the life of Israel when Saul was wanting to prove his devotion by sacrificing tons and tons of oxen, and yet in his heart he was disobeying God. God said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire your heart and not your sacrifice. By the way, this is right after Matthew. Matthew is chosen. What did Jesus want from every single one of his disciples? Their heart. Just like he does today, by the way. And you've heard this phrase many times. This isn't something original for me. The church is a hospital, right? The church is a hospital. Who, who are we supposed to welcome? Sinners. Those that are in need of healing those are in need of forgiveness by the way every single one of these miracles point to that okay it started starting here in the very beginning of chapter 9 every single one of these miracles points to this then the disciples of john came to him saying why do we and the pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast remember this is john the baptist john the baptist was a son of a priest he was very devoted in his desire to prepare the way for the lord he ate locusts and wild honey he lived out in the the wilderness it was him that had from before he was even born taken that Nazarite vow of not having anything from the vine, no wine, no grapes, no raisins, anything like that. And so his disciples come to him and they coming from this very strict person, this very strict, rigid person who had, who had made sure that they were fasting and preparing themselves for Jesus Christ. And then they come to Jesus and they see what Jesus is doing. And what does Jesus say there in verse 15? And you understand Jesus's heart when he explains this, by the way. Put yourself in their shoes. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. 
nor do they put new wine into old wineskin or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Why did Jesus hang out with sinners? Why did Jesus show his heart and love for being around tax collectors and sinners? Because the bridegroom was still there. You see what is happening, and all of us understand this, what happens before a wedding? Normally, you know, especially in, in our society, you have the, these various celebrations before the bride and the bridegroom get married. What do the bride and her bridesmaid and her friends do? They have a bridal shower, right? What do they do? They have fun. They give gifts. They share things. They talk amongst themselves. They have lots of fun, right? Same thing with the groom as well with his friends. And this is what Jesus is saying, that there's a time for celebration and there's a time for fasting. And, and there would be a time after Jesus Christ died when they would mourn. But what were they doing while Jesus was here on the earth? They were being a hospital. They were being doctors. They were celebrating. They were bringing people in. The multitudes were gathering around Jesus. Look at the illustrations that he uses. Not just the physician, not just the hospital, not just the bridegroom, but what are the next two illustrations that Jesus uses? It's the patch on the garment, and it's the wine in the wineskin. And what happens when you mix two different things? What, what happens when you mix something old with something new? What happens? Yeah. There's a tearing. There's a destruction. There's a bursting. Right? And of course, Jesus coming in in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, showing that the old is being fulfilled right in their midst. Jesus is the new. And what were the Pharisees holding back to? The old. What were the religious elites holding on to? It was the old. It wasn't the new. Jesus is showing them that there's something that is better. Do you understand that there's joy in the presence of Jesus? There's joy in the presence of Jesus. Especially what's coming up to Christmas time and we celebrate Jesus, we celebrate his birth, we celebrate his life here on the earth. And what's the, the most famous saying that people say during this time of the year? It's joy, right? That we would have joy uh, during this time of the year. That there would be peace in our lives. Jesus brought joy every single place he came to. Verse 18 there it says, while he spoke these things to them, behold a ruler came and worshipped him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. There's something very important that happens here. Jesus is being worshipped. And by the way, this guy who comes to him not only understands who Jesus is, not only understands his power, but understands that prophecy is being fulfilled in their very midst, because this, again, is something impossible 
why does this man worship Jesus? That's the very first thing we see. The first thing he does, but before he even asks for the healing, what does he do with Jesus? He worships him. And, and, and unlike any of the angels, unlike any of the other prophets, Jesus doesn't tell that man to get up and stop worshiping him. You understand that? And if Jesus wasn't God, what would that be? Again, blasphemy, right? No one's allowed to worship humans or, or idols or any created thing, right? That, that's blasphemous. But what does Jesus do? He receives the worship before the miracle is done, by the way. And this guy says, my, my daughter has died. Wow. Th th this is harder than leprosy. That this is harder than healing someone that's blind. This is harder than a paralytic, by the way. This isn't just some outward healing. What is having to happen with a dead person, by the way? A dead person. This is the first time that we see a resurrection in the New Testament. What is happening here? Where Jesus not only has power over a sickness, but now has power over death. Has power over death. Again, fulfilling prophecy, verse 20 there. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood from, for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For he, she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Not only is Jesus able to do multiple things at the same exact time, but he's doing multiple healings at the same exact time. Do you see what's happening? As he's going to go and heal this person that's dead, what happens to him? In the book of Luke, we actually see a little bit more detail. There's this jostling of the crowd where literally there's hundreds of people, if not thousands of people around him, and all these people are touching him and trying to get his attention. And this lady who has been bleeding for 12 years touches just the hem of his robe, just the very edge of his robe. One of, one of those tassels that came from the corners of his robe. They touched it, and what, is, what happens to her? He's healed just like the hem of his robe. How powerful is that? Not just having to touch her or say something to her, but even just touching the hem of his robe. Is there power in Jesus? Now, we understand exactly what's happening here. There were lots of people that were touching him. But who was the only one that had faith knowing that Jesus could heal them? Now, you, again, you have to understand the power of this. It, Jesus is on his way to heal someone or raise someone from the dead. And she herself has been going through a horrific ordeal for 12 years. In the book of Luke, we also find out that she'd given all of her money to the doctors in order to heal herself. She, she had gone from doctor and doctor and given literally all, all of her money in order to pay for these procedures. And she still bled and bled. 
and what had happened to her, not just physically, but emotionally as well. This wasn't just a, a, a cut or a wound on the external. This was literally internal bleeding coming out of her. Where it was literally, whether it was her uterus or the part of her body where babies were born, to put it in a PG form, but to understand that this bleeding that was happening affected even her being a woman. It, it affected her as a, a female, right? Where literally she had to deal with this bleeding that happened not, not just once a month, but every single day. And just the stigma that came with that. Because for a woman, they were unclean if they were to go through their cycle, their menstrual cycle. And now to have it every single day for 12 years. Wow. Not just the healing by the touching of the hem of the robe, but also the understanding that she was restored and made clean again. No longer unclean, but now clean. Being able to be accepted again. To understand that is just really amazing. And what Jesus says here, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. Can you imagine that stigma? Can you imagine that, if you will, depression or just the internal struggling with this every single day, hoping that doctor would be able to help her, hoping that person that she gave her money to would be able to help her, and no one being able to help her except for Jesus in desperation, reaching out to touch the hem of the rope, as he's on his way, by the way, to going and raising someone from the dead. Who's the only one that can do that, by the way? Emmanuel, the Messiah, God incarnate, walking in their very midst, fulfilling prophecy, by the way. Things that had never been done ever on the planet. Impossible for human beings to do, by the way. Verse 23, I, I was hoping, I, I, I gave my notes to the guys and there was only two chapters this week. And they said, oh, are you going to be out? You're going to get through this really quick. No, you don't, I, I'm not even going to be able to get through one chapter. Hopefully, we'll see here. Verse 27, or excuse me, verse 23. And if you're dyslexic or have some sort of attention deficit disorder or something, Jesus is doing all these amazing things. He's on his way to, to raising someone from the dead. He gets distracted by this lady who touches her. He, he addresses her. Be of good cheer. Joy in her heart. You are healed now. And then now he gets to this place where he was supposed to go to in the very first place when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And this time, if someone died, you would go out and you would hire professional wailers or professional criers. Have you ever been in a Middle Eastern uh, funeral or something like that? Uh, people are very uh, loud. Even in Asia, I, I actually had the privilege of living in, in the Philippines for a while, and I went to several funerals there. My wife is Filipino, and knowing that at times, normally they're very quiet unless it's a, a funeral, and, and literally the wailing, the crying of the heart, the louder you wailed, the louder you cried, it showed your devotion to that person. And so because of that, they would hire professional wailers that showed their devotion to this dead person. And of course, this daughter, of course, the, literally the heart of their, the parent, 
showing their devotion to their daughter, their love for their daughter, hiring these professional whalers, Jesus says, get out of here. Get out of here. He said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. They ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand and the girl. And the report of this went out into all the land. Wow. And by the way, as Jesus is doing this, miracle after miracle after miracle, proving who he is. The Messiah walking in their midst. Verse 27, and when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. When he come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. There's an interesting way that Jesus talks to these blind men. Okay? What's the first thing that he says after the miracle? See, isn't that amazing? These blind men being able to see, whether it was for the first time, we don't know if they were born blind or, or, or not. We don't, we don't know all the details of this. But the very first thing Jesus says to them is, see, right? Now, now the interesting thing here, if you, you really understand this, you really see this, every time Jesus heals a blind person, because Blind people are the most uh, uh, common people that Jesus heals, especially in, in the Gospels here. Every su- single time he heals a blind person, he does it a different way. Some of them he spits in the ground, mixes a little bit of mud, puts it in their eye. Sometimes he speaks. This time he actually touches them in the eye. But every single time it's a different way. It's a different way of healing. Do you know what would happen if Jesus did this formula or this mantra or this chant or whatever, and he did it the same way? You know what would happen? We would try to do it ourselves too, right? We would rely more upon the formula, more upon the the steps, if you will, to do it rather than relying upon Jesus Christ. What he says to them is according to your what? faith according to your faith it's the same thing today by the way and we come to the close of the time and there was only about three minutes left and but you understand that even today that jesus is looking for people that need him and that rely upon him rather than the the hoopla that we always do unfortunately who are we supposed to seek Jesus. Who's the healer? Jesus. Who's the one that we're supposed to go to? Jesus. And and so many times, just like with the religious leaders, just like with the skeptics, just like with people that were judging Jesus, the ones that in their heart were saying he blasphemes or or were doubting uh, Jesus, they wanted to rely upon the old. They wanted to rely upon their status as religious leaders. And what is Jesus saying? Come to me. There's life. 
There's something better. That There's a new covenant. We'll end it here. I love what it says here in verse 32. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. Wow. Do you know why Jesus comes not only to fulfill prophecy, and yes, we've seen that over and over, not just to heal and do miracles and to heal people, but to prove that the impossible could be done. Things that had not done by Elijah, not done by Elisha, not done by any of the prophets of old, not done by Moses. This is happening uniquely with Jesus. And it speaks to who he is, his messiahship. The one who came, and now we see all these miracles, and then in chapter, starting in chapter 10, we're going to see he goes and explains who he is. He proves who he is, and then he explains who he is. The proof through the miracles shows that God is walking amongst them because who's the only one that made the eyes and can heal the eyes? Who's the only one that made the tongue and the mouth and the vocal cords and could heal? Who's the only one that made the limbs, the arms and the legs? Who's the only one that could heal people and raise them even from the dead? The one that created life itself. It's God. And Jesus, being God incarnate, Emmanuel walking amongst them, proves this. The miracles that were never done before, performed by Jesus, proved that he was the Messiah. And hopefully, whether you go back and you read the rest of this, or maybe even pick up some things that I wasn't able to go through just because of time, whether you read Mark chapter 2, which is amazing, all these same things are taking place in Mark chapter 2. Also in Luke chapter 10, you can read exactly the same miracles that Jesus is doing. You read those, those pictures of who Jesus is through the eyes of Mark, through the eyes of Luke, through the eyes of Matthew, and you see just miracle after miracle proving who Jesus Christ is. And is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is, any, is he here right now? And so the prayer for tonight is that we wouldn't be the same as when we came in. That those of you that are here would leave changed. Those of you that are watching would be changed. And so I pray for you tonight. Dear Father, I, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family. And those that are here, those that are watching online, the amazing way that you work. And not even finishing a chapter, but just the depth, the immensity of your work here on this earth, coming to show and prove who you were, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God walking in the midst of people that were in need of a Savior. And just like those people of the day, you do the same now, using us reaching out through us. And so, Lord, help us to be like you. Help us to be little Christ. Help us to be Christians. 
Help us to be followers of you as Matthew was and, and to understand that, that we too have a mission to go out and tell other people about you. To have that desire to show your love to a lost and dying world. To be there for sinners. To be there for people that are without hope. Especially just all around us, people are looking for hope. People are wanting something to fill their lives and it can only be truly filled with you and help us to have that desire to share with those people in our spheres of influence, whether it's those that gather around our table at Thanksgiving or come to our house during certain times of the year or our family or friends, people that no one else would come into contact except for us in this room or, or people that we know. Lord, help us to have that desire to reach out to the lost the hurting, and those that are in need of you. And so, Lord, I ask you, bless these, my friends, my family. Massage these things into our hearts. Help us to meditate upon these things this week. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.